Our reading is Isaiah 52, which is on the page you were given when you came in. This is the word of our eternal, unchangeable God. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not yet been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Amen. If you keep that passage there to hand, um, you'll find that helpful. Last week we were um, thinking about Isaiah 9, and we were thinking uh, about the promise of salvation for God's people and the way that it looks and this is the imagery that's used by Isaiah there is of light breaking over darkness of joy dispelling gloom and so now this week we see a few more details about that before we'll sort of come to the actual narrative of the story of Jesus' birth and the question sort of being asked is how will God's people be saved? What will they be saved from? And who will save them? What we find is a hope of our salvation is wrapped up in the birth of a son who would be king. And last week we thought about that. But now we see another aspect to Jesus' coming. That he would also be a suffering servant who would give himself up for his people. And so I want to show you three sort of movements, I suppose, in this bit of narrative and prophecy here. Firstly, living as though it's true. 
Secondly, a victory that is to come. And thirdly, the servant who saves. I wonder if as you read sort of some of those verses there, and you sort of see the sort of desperation that Israel are in, the gloom that has set in over them. We thought last week of those famous words of how the light would break over that, of how the darkness would be dispelled. There would be no anguish and gloom and misery for those who have been in the midst of that. I wonder if you hear sort of these words this morning here, verses 1 and 2. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. There shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And I wonder if you might slightly wonder, Israel here in a really desperate moment, where they're wallowing in despondency. So is God guilty here of a very modern crime of toxic positivity? That is not accepting the reality of how they really feel. We live in a world dominated by sort of social media, which is just replete with virtue signaling. It's why I don't really engage very much with it, because... I'm very cynical and mean-spirited, and uh, I just don't want to hear it, uh, and I'm not impressed. I'm, I'm difficult to impress, but there you go. But even worse, you know, you can stick this stuff up in your home now, uh, and so, you know, again, not for my sort of well-being, but I was looking at this this week, you know, because, you know, sometimes it's not enough just to put it on social media. Why not just plaster it on your walls, too, to let everyone know just how great you really are and what you're about, and so you can see some of these things here. You can do anything you put your mind to. But you can't. You can't. No one in this room is going to be an Olympic sprinter who breaks Usain Bolt's world record. You put your mind to it as much as you like, you're not going to be. You can't do anything you put your mind to. It's not good to tell yourself that. Or accept yourself. Uh Uh-huh. Sometimes that's true. But I don't think we would want to say that all the time, would we? Would we want to say that of Vladimir Putin? He should just accept himself. We should accept him. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think it's helpful at all, is it? Or perhaps that good vibes only in this house, in pink neon as well, even for viewing pleasure. Is God just doing something similar here? Here they are in the midst of desperation, and some of that desperation, you'd look at it and you think, that's pretty reasonable. They're surrounded by other nations who overpower them, who threaten to overwhelm them and overtake them. There's an element of their despair that's really understandable. That you can get it. So is God here just saying, you know, come on, put your clothes on, get up, get dressed, shake the dust off your feet? Is he just not accepting where they really are? Well, I don't think God is being toxically positive here. I think it's not good to allow people to believe very harmful things that just simply aren't true and not challenge them, even if they feel it very strongly. And that's what God is doing here for these people. Perhaps the people here were wondering, when will God save us? And so God throws it back to them with three actions that he gives them. Do you notice them there? Verse 1, wake up. There's two, fix up, get yourself dressed, get yourself together. And then in the second half of that verse, 
loose your bonds, take your shackles off. See, salvation doesn't depend on us. We'll, we'll see that as this passage itself develops. It's in Christ's works alone. But there is a call here. And the call from God is, well, I'm ready to save, but when will you walk in my salvation? There's a challenge for them. First, he challenges them, wake up. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Find your strength in your faith in my ability, in my strength. He has promised rescue. He will deliver on his promises. But you do need at some point to believe that and to live in hopeful expectation of that. Wake up, he says. Second, he says, fix up. Put on your beautiful garments. They're down and out. They're not looking after themselves. And there's something positive even just in everyday life, isn't there, sometimes about forcing yourself sometimes to, to get dressed up okay. Get, get out of your mood by dressing yourself ready for that. Put on your beautiful garments. Shake yourself from the dust and arise They need to pick themselves up from despair. Unlike Babylon, a few chapters earlier in 47, verse 1, they're called actually to sit in that. Sit in the dust and mourn because you actually have defeat coming. You look so strong and mighty now trying to uh, uh, abuse and overtake the people of God, but in time to come, you will be defeated and you will sit and you will rest in the dust You'll face defeat before the living God. But for the people of God, it is get yourselves up out of the dust. You're not beaten yet. Wake up, fix up, and loose your bonds. Look at verse 2 there. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Stop living now as if you're slaves. There's a truth there, isn't there, that you can be freed, but if in your head you're held hostage, it won't matter. And that's the problem for the people here. And really, we too can be held hostage by almost anything. Almost anything that we look to for comfort, for purpose, for joy, for meaning in life. You find out the things that hold you as slaves by seeing what happens when you try to take them away. Think of the alcoholic. You don't find an alcoholic actually by the volume that they drink. You find the alcoholic by seeing what happens when you take it away. Can they cope without it? You find the control freak not by how organized their life is, But can they handle not being in control at any moment? You find the person who's power hungry, not by whether they have a position or what the position is, but can they cope with none? Or do they fold in completely? You find the approval addict, not by their reaction to approval, but the reaction to not receiving approval. See, you and I can be free in the gospel, and we are. But if you're not in your mind, it won't matter. The way that you see yourself really does shape whether you will live as free or as a slave. And so he calls them here, loose the bonds from your neck. 
And this isn't just positive thinking. And this is not in any way detracting from God's grace. It really is living as if it's really true. There's a danger here of either fatalism or legalism. And neither of them are the same as grace. Legalism says you have to do the right things for God to bless you. So if you're down and if things aren't going so well, you need to ask yourself, what did you do wrong? Fix it. What do you need to do? Do it. Then things will go good for you. We all know in reality that's not how life works. Fatalism, on the other hand, says you have no ability to do anything, so don't try. And so if you're down and if things aren't going so well, it's, well, what did you expect you shouldn't have? What can you do? Nothing. Just accept things are bad. The only possible veneer of the gospel is to say, well, but it's all okay in the end because Jesus has done it, so I just have to sort of wait until the end. That is not grace. Grace is not a fatalism like that. The wonderful grace of the gospel says you can hope for more and you can change. Through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, you can gradually be who you were always made to be. No, it does not depend on you and your work, but the work of Christ empowers you to work out your faith. Now, after this challenge, God gives the explanation of this, verses 3 to 6. We see that sort of transition marked with that four. Now he gives us the why they should do this. Why should they pick themselves up, shake themselves off of the dust, get themselves dressed, get themselves ready? Thus says the Lord. And there's a pretty significant transition. God is now speaking directly. And there's a challenge for them because their problem, much like ours too, things are really not so different even though a lot of time passes, is that they were listening to other things above God's word. When God's word actually is, is greater than the world's word. When God's word is actually greater than my words. When God's word is greater than my feelings. And when God's word is greater than the world's feelings. But there's their problem. And so here's the answer. God speaks, thus says the Lord. You were sold for nothing. And you should be redeemed without money. What is he saying here? This is a really, really challenging idea. What it's saying is, God wasn't forced to give you over for the money. God didn't have to go with Israel down to cash converters because he couldn't pay the heating bill and he had no choice. He wasn't forced to this. Now, do you see why this is a challenging idea? They were given freely as a judgment for abandoning God. So, his point is, I am just as free to redeem you whenever I want to. 
I never had to sell you into slavery because I needed the money desperately. And then the only thing stopping me getting you back was just getting the money. That wasn't it. I do everything freely. I'm not constrained. I'm not contained. I have no problem of limit of resources. You were given freely. I'll get you back freely too. And then 4 to 6 explains this. That the problem really has always been between God and his people, his wayward people, not God and the nations. They were taken away by Assyria in some senses, having done nothing to provoke the Assyrians. But this was God's judgment to them. We know the language there about loosing the bonds from the neck is very accurate of what happened. There's um, hopefully here a, a slide uh, of a relief of some Assyrians taking out a line of slaves there. It's, it's harder to see in the stonework uh, than it is in the illustration that's been sort of made based on, on some of these pieces of artwork. But the slaves would be linked by chains that would run uh, through their noses together. And they were notoriously uh, very wicked and, and violent towards prisoners of war that they took. They'd been taken in some ways, having been unprovoked by the Assyrians. And so God says here, verse 5, what do I have here? Or we could translate it sort of in modern English, what, what am I to do? What am I to do about this situation? To the nations, it seems that God has failed because of his people's captivity. If he's really that strong a God, why would these people be overrun by this other group? Secondly, to the, it leads to his own people crying out. And thirdly, he says that his name is despised. And so God has two responses here, doesn't he? They'll know my name and they'll know my voice. They shall know my name. They shall know it's I who speak. That's his answer to the problem of his wayward people and to the pain that they're in in captivity. That they would know his name, that they would know his voice. And knowing his name is more than just knowing that sort of information. It's about the character behind the name. Because names did that in Hebrew culture. And God's name principally is I am. I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. As he's best understood and known by his lack of constraint, his complete freedom related to all other created existing things. That he is the one who is uncreated, unlimited, unending, unwavering, unyielding, unbiased, unchanging and uncontainable. And his answer is, you'll be reminded of that by me destroying what on earth seems most powerful, with ease. They will know his name, but secondly, they'll know his voice. God had all along disclosed his mind, his plans, his purposes, which are now beginning to be borne out. And Isaiah's brought this message, the voice of God, but he's brought it to a people who don't hear and can't hear. Back in chapter 6, verse 9, God tells him his assignment is going to be that he's going to bring this message to a people who will keep on hearing but don't understand, keep on seeing but don't perceive. 
That's been their problem. God's answer is, you will now know my name. You will hear my voice. He will rescue them so they know him and they know his word so their relationship is restored. The very thing that had led to their exile. He calls them to live as though it's true. But secondly, there's a pointer now to the victory that is to come. We get this picture here of the messenger. And the call is to visualize victory. This is something that elite athletes often do. There's a quote here from Michael Jordan, famous basketball player, speaking of his career. He said, I visualized where I wanted to be, what kind of player I wanted to become. I knew exactly where I wanted to go, and I focused on getting there. As part of this, he began regularly uh, visualizing himself making the game-winning shot before he even got on the court. The way out of the gloom here for Israel is visualizing the victory that is to come through God. And we see that here in this picture. The answer to the gloom and the depression they feel and why they should rise out of it, as they've been called to in that first section, comes in celebrating this victory in this hymn. And we get several pictures here. Firstly, the messenger's feet. Look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Pictures the messenger who would return with news from the battlefield. And if it's good news, that's a joyous experience and occasion. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. And there's the connection there between victory convincing people of God's rule and reign. Now we see his power. You see the messenger's feet. You see the watchman's voices. The voice of your watchman, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. They see the return of the Lord to Zion. This uh, picture here is a little memo, a little piece of news that was incredibly significant. It's called, rather catchily, the German Instrument of Surrender. And it marked the end of World War II and sparked joy as that news filtered out. You imagine being in those first crowds, hearing this news relayed. Six long years, global war put to an end. The joy, the relief that there would be. You see some of the scenes there of some of the soldiers hearing that news and this is that picture the watchman comes and the watchman raises their voice to give this news and bursts into praise the ecstasy of being among the first to see to hear and to know that conflict is over though they're in the midst of depression now we saw that in verse one to two there's joyful celebration to come in God and that is where to look now. Thirdly, you see a reverberating wasteland. Look at verse 9. We'll break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. Not only God's people, but God's creation sings out in praise of his work. Because God's salvation is always cosmic in its dimensions. It's not just about humanity, it's about everything being restored. The Lord is comforted, that's consoled or given rest 
to his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. And notice there, this, this is past tense. And yet, it's a future event that it's speaking of. The, the point in that is, celebrate your freedom, your redemption now, believing it will come to pass. Then we see, fourthly, the Lord's arms. The Lord has bared his holy arm or shoulder or strength, it can be translated. In rescuing them, he's revealed his power. It makes me think back of wrestling in the 80s to Hulk Hogan, the great hero. One of his many catchphrases was, what are you going to do, brother, when the largest arms in the world run wild on you? Allegedly, 24-inch biceps. Arnold Schwarzenegger's were 22. Makes you sort of question the legitimacy a little bit. But either way, strong arms. And here God has revealed his strong arms of strength here. He has bared his holy arm before all the nations. And it's global. Because he has global purposes. He wants everybody to see. Everybody to recognize his strength. So that all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And then lastly there, fifthly, there's a call to action. This little section here ends uh, in verses 11 to 12 with a call to action for God's people. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves. It's a call to holiness, to setting themselves apart. You shall not go out in haste, we're told. You shall not go in flight you're not going to be rushing out in secret you're not going to be slipping out the side door I want everybody to know what is going to happen you're going to walk out the front door you're going to walk not run and they're going to see the strong arm of the Lord go with them in front and behind the song anticipates the salvation to come that they haven't seen yet but now it finishes here by showing us how that salvation will come. Lastly here, verses 13 to 15, we see the servant who saves. See, all of the joy and the celebration of the victory that's to come is rooted in God's sending of a servant who saves. Verse 13, behold, my servant shall act wisely, shall prosper. That idea of wisdom is easy enough, I think, to understand of one who would come from God. The second bit is more challenging, especially considering what is to come, that he prospers. That's challenging, considering how much he suffers. That tells us, because you suffer, it doesn't mean that God is powerless. Because you suffer, it doesn't mean necessarily you've sinned. Because you suffer, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not prospering. God's plan here is for his servant to suffer. That's difficult for us because we live in a world that opposes suffering, doesn't understand it, and wants always really to remove it. But in view of eternity, there is a useful kind of suffering. We know this, really, in many different ways. Martin Luther King said, Human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. 
the tireless exertions and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. There is all sorts of suffering in life that is useful, that is indeed necessary, that is even productive in some way. And yet that doesn't stop it also being hard. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, we're told. Eventually he will be. Eventually he will be lifted up and praised and glorified and honoured, but only after suffering first. And if anything, there may well be a play on words here. Because he'll only really truly be high and lifted up after being lifted up on a cross. And this is the way in which Jesus uses that very phrase in John's Gospel. John chapter 3 verse 14, Jesus is speaking. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Strangely, in his moment of losing everything, he conquers everything. It's when he's lifted up in his moment of greatest suffering that he's seen most clearly and that he's glorified most brightly. And maybe that explains why verse 14 tells us as many as were astonished at you, they'll be astonished at him. They'll be surprised, they'll be appalled, they'll be confused. He'll suffer just like his people have suffered in order to save them. His appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his face beyond that of the children of mankind and it only carries on in more and more imagery into Isaiah 53. But if God's people find it hard to resolve suffering when they face it, that God had allowed them to face, then here is some help. That the servant of God will know a level of suffering and I think the text is very generous here in saying that... Um, it, in some ways they'll be able to understand this, that he'll have the same kind of suffering, because I don't think it is. I think Jesus suffers far worse, suffers on a level we do not understand, far beyond anything we can really process. Think how scandalous that is, that God allows his servant, his son, to be abused like that. What working conditions for him to allow so shall he sprinkle many nations. And yet, God is working out all his plans in this. None of this suffering is arbitrary. None of it is meaningless. None of it is useless. Some commentators will translate that as startle. You might see a note there perhaps on, on your Bible that tells you that. And so the point being that his glory would amaze people, in verse 13. And then his humiliation will amaze people, in verse 15. However, sprinkle, I think, is the most interesting translation and the right one to use. Because sprinkle is the language of the temple. Specifically, it's the language of atonement, of offering blood sacrifice in the place of blood that God's wrath may be averted. It's the language of the sacrificial lamb that would be slaughtered in the place of people 
and the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat where God's presence resided. It symbolized that for you to be able to approach God and be in his presence, a death needed to happen first. And really it needed to be yours, but by his grace he'd accept a substitute to cover your sins, to shield God from looking upon your sin. So the message is God's servant would be that very sacrifice. God's servant would sprinkle his blood in order to save many people from many nations that they might be restored to God. That relationship might be repaired. That forgiveness could be given. So shall he sprinkle many nations only by suffering could Jesus fulfill the plans of God for his creation and so kings will shut their mouths because of him verse 15 all the great and the good the wise and the powerful silenced before God that which hasn't been told them they see it's a unique story that in losing all things, the Saviour will actually conquer all things. So they're to live as though God's word is true. They're to celebrate the victory he will win. They're to put faith in the servant who saves. How does this relate to Christmas? That's also answered by asking the obvious question, who is this servant, of course, it is Jesus. And in numerous of those retellings of the birth of Christ, as the apostles look back onto those events after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, it's then when they go and they collect these stories from eyewitnesses and put together their gospel accounts, it's then now believing in a way that they didn't really all the way along until he rose that they can look back and can say what was happening was this all along. That Jesus had come from the first to save, to be the king who reigns in justice and righteousness and to be the suffering servant who dies in our place. And so this morning, I'll leave you with the same two things that Isaiah gives us here. Do we know God's name? Do we know his nature? Do we keep that to heart? Do we keep that at the front of our minds? Do we know his voice? Are we hearing his voice? One commentator puts it like this. I'll close in a second. Has God spoken? This is the most critical question in human thought. If he has, we can know him and his ways. We can know ourselves and the meaning of life. We can find deliverance from all the enemies who bind us. If he is not, or worse, if the Israelite claims that he has a lies, then humanity's condition is hopeless. But Isaiah insists that God has spoken and that Israel's experience is the unshakable proof 
of that fact.